Ian and his wife, Selena, worked here at ICP several years ago, and they were directors of discipleship, uh, worked with Youth Praha and The Bridge when they were here, and now they live in Pennsylvania. Ian is the uh, lead pastor at New Covenant Christian Community Church in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, and they come back every year to run TCK Camp, and so we're really glad to have Ian with us this morning and again next Sunday. So, Ian, glad to have you with us, and come on up. Good morning, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be with you this morning. I can't even explain it. I well up just being in Prague, worshiping with you all, seeing familiar faces, dear, dear friends that Selene and I think of often and miss so dearly. This is really one of our favorite places on the whole planet, and we feel, we feel very much at home. So thank you for welcoming us back and for giving me the privilege of being able to share this morning. We are geared up for the biggest camp I think we've ever had. We've got 112 kids signed up. Yeah, we've got uh, 32 counselors coming from three different nations and seven different churches. So this is, this is really a demonstration of the oneness of the body of Christ in the Holy Spirit. Um, do keep us in your prayers. I know it's going to be a fantastic week. It always is. It's a highlight of the year. And uh, it's our great pleasure. It's become one of Selena and I's major ministries of our life, the last 11 years doing this camp. We're a little bit crazy. We love it a lot. Uh, <laughs> Before we get to our passage, um, I'm going to do kind of like a two-part message this week and next week. And just as we begin, I want you to imagine with me that you're a screenwriter for a TV show. And you're working on writing a sitcom about a group of 20, 30-something-year-olds, and they're, like everybody, they're out trying to find the good life. And like most sitcoms, a lot of it would center around their relationships and the love interests. And um, to make it engaging, you would probably write this kind of unexpected group of friends uh, with interesting scenarios to bring them together. And so there's usually a character who's the, you know, the quirky one. You've got the, the, uh, the cool one. You've got the kind of the loser one, the lazy one. Uh, and then you've got every sitcom usually has a character that is the one that everyone wants to be like right? Everyone wants to be this character. And so now imagine that you had to write a faithful Christian into that group of friends. Which character would they be? Someone said the weird one. (laughs) Which character would they be? And so what I want you to imagine is Can you imagine writing a character or a character being created in that group of friends who would end up being the one that everyone who watches that show would want to be like? And you're probably thinking, well, sounds unlikely. (laughs) Sounds a little bit hard to imagine because I think the common assumption that our culture lives in and that probably we even, as Christians, 
tend to assume with our culture is that Christians are not typically the ones that we think of as living the good life. They're not the ones that we picture on the front of, you know, lifestyle magazines and uh, the things that we typically associate with what we think the good life is. But what is the good life? All right, so we're going to ask, I want you to basically, um, I'm not a relationships expert. I'm not really an expert in anything. But what, Jesus is the expert. And so I want to come together to him and sit at his feet and say, Jesus, master teacher, teach us about relationships. What did, the, what did Jesus teach us about relationships? So what is the good life is the first thing. And when Jesus was asked this question in a way by the Pharisees, they asked him, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You'll, you, you may remember, he said two things. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And there's a second commandment that's like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice that both of those things are relational by nature. They're relational commands because they're commands to love. And so the first thing I want you to see before we even get into our text for this morning is that according to Jesus, humanity is intended for relationship. And this is why By the way, this is something that that, um, uh, all the scientific research is continually backing up and and supporting, that the reason we don't feel fulfilled in life, no matter how much money or success we get, the reason we don't feel fulfilled in life without deep, meaningful, intimate relationships is what Jesus says, is that we are created for relationship. We're created for the purpose of loving relationship. And so when we don't experience that, no matter what else we have, we know we're not living in our created purpose. And so what sin does, the whole point of, well, the enemy's plan against humanity is to disrupt our created purpose. And so he strikes at the root of relationships. Sin disrupts and distorts and destroys our relationships. And so we're going to be reading a passage from the Sermon on the Mount this morning, which Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' TED Talk. It is his master class. It is the the apex of all of his teaching, his most famous uh, uh, set of, his most extended set of teaching recorded in the Gospels. And uh, Tim Mackey from the the Gospel Project, or the the Bible Project says, "This, this talk forever changed the world. No thinker that ever spoke on on goodness, on ethics, on on relationships ever since has been able to ignore what Jesus says. They completely transformed our understanding of goodness and human nature and the nature of God. And so when you read the the Sermon on the Mount, what you see is a lot of it has to deal, the majority of it has to deal with the dynamics of relationships. If you go back and read it with that mindset, you're going to see all sorts of wisdom about relationships, relationship to God and relationship between humans. And what Jesus offers is far more than a set of religious rules that crush our spirits, and he's offering us far more than what 
Human culture typically offers this kind of idol of sex that distorts our purpose. And here's, here's how I summarize it in the next point, is that Jesus offers us a vision of relationships that bring holistic human flourishing. Jesus offers a vision of relationships that brings holistic human flourishing. And he does this by directly addressing the major sources of relational breakdown. And he begins with anger and lust. And so those are the two things we're going to look at uh, today and next week, anger and lust, as what Dallas Willard says are the two primary occasions of the breakdown of human relationships. If we could just deal with anger and lust, virtually all of our human relational problems would disappear. Money comes next probably, but uh, (laughs) if we could deal with anger and lust, imagine what our relationships could look like. And so um, we're going to look at both of these, and the passage this morning is dealing with this source, this problem of anger. All right, and we're going to see three things. The source of anger, the solution to anger, and the cure for anger. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn them on to Matthew 5. It'll be up on the screen. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. I should, have, uh, I should have alerted our text to that, but up on the screen you'll see the NIV. So you'll get to see a little bit of uh, two different ways to translate this passage. So Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17, we're going to read through to uh, verse 26. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'll just interject one comment before we finish the passage here. So you see Jesus is he's contrasting two visions of the good life, two visions of what goodness looks like. The way of the Pharisees and the way of love. What does true goodness look like? And so he begins to explain, and he he gives us six antitheses, six comparisons, and this is the first one. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And in your translation, it might say, whoever says racha to his brother. And we're going to see what that means. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of God. 
So let's begin with the source, our first heading, all right? Now, um, when Jesus gives his first example there, he says, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. So quick trivia question. Who is Jesus quoting when he says, you shall not murder? He's quoting the Ten Commandments, so he's quoting God, okay? Those are the words that God wrote with his own finger on the tablets, and then, you know, Moses smashed him and all that stuff, so he had to do it again. Um, (laughs) He's quoting God, and yet Jesus says, you've heard this said, but now I say to you. And so what that's saying to us, we just have to see what's happening here as Jesus is speaking. Jesus is not an interpreter of the law like the other teachers. He's not a uh, deliverer. He's not a giver of the law. Uh, Sorry, he's not a proclaimer of the law like a prophet. He's actually claiming the authority of the lawgiver. He's the giver of the law as the Son of God. He is the Word of God made flesh. And so Jesus is the authority of the law. And as he's teaching about the kingdom of God, what's happening here is that he's shaping a new community around himself that will be able to live out the great commandment, the great commandment of loving God and loving our neighbors. And so what's happening is that Jesus is, just as he says, he's not getting rid of the law. He's not issuing new laws. What I would argue is that what he's doing here, it's our next point, is that Jesus is illustrating the kind of heart that naturally fulfills the law. And I think you can see this in the fact that when you you look at Jesus, you look at his life, read the Gospels, um, look at his relationships, how he carries himself, how he treats people, and what you realize is that everything he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount is exactly what Jesus demonstrates in his life. These are the principles that he lives by that define his own character. And I don't know if you, you know, when you, when you think of Jesus and, you know, he's relating to all these, you know, annoying disciples who never get anything and he's dealing with these, these hypocritical Pharisees and he's dealing with these, these uh, you know, outcast uh, lepers and different people. Um, and you see how he treats them and he's always treating them with this perfect love. Do you picture him kind of like gritting his teeth and being like, yeah, man, these people really get on my nerves, but, you know, God said I got to love them, so, you know, I better love them. Like, right? You, you don't picture him like that. It seems like it's the most natural thing in the world for him, because it is. It's simply who he is. And get this, Jesus says, as you follow him, this is exactly the kind of person that he intends to shape you into. Romans 8, 29 says that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are destined, it's, it's every child of God's destiny to be shaped into the very character of Jesus. And it's a process that will only be completed in his presence, but it's a road that every one of his children is on. And so, this is exactly the kind of person that he promises to make us, and yet we know that it can't just be through obeying laws. It can only be through gaining a heart of love. And so here's what I mean. So you go through life, and there's this constant tension between what our 
mind wants to do, what our will wants to do, and what our flesh, what our passions kind of drive us to do. You remember, you may be familiar with Romans 7 where the Apostle Paul talks about this, this tension. Um, uh, the philosopher Plato talked about um, life as kind of this, this chariot where you've got two horses that are constantly pulling against one another. You've got the horse of, of reason that knows what's the good to do, but then you've got this horse of passion that's just wild and constantly driving the chariot off course. And, and life feels like that a lot of times, and it's frustrating. And so we desire goodness, and what we do is we create laws to restrict our passions and keep them in check, and that's a good thing. And the problem is, even though it's a good thing, it doesn't lead to making us good people. And what you see in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees is that it's quite possible to live in full conformity to the actions of the law and yet remain a horrible person. You can follow the letter of the law and yet complete, be completely devoid of love. And yet, a heart that's transformed by love, what you see is it naturally obeys the law. When your heart is transformed and consumed or pervaded by the love of God, you naturally obey the law. It's kind of like a runner. Um, you know, if you and I went onto the track and tried to run a, a four-minute mile, you know, there may be one or two of us that could get close to that. Most of us would fail miserably no matter how much, you know, effort we put into it. And it's because we haven't trained ourselves to do that. It's unnatural for our body to try and do that. And yet for a runner, someone who's dedicated themselves to that and gone through the discipline, done the required you know, eating and rest and exercise to do, it's natural for them to be able to run in the way that they desire to run. And so in the same way, when we're being trained in, in the love and the goodness of God, what was once unnatural when God invades your heart and Jesus trains you in his way, what was once unnatural now starts to become more and more natural. And now you, you, you get to a point where you can't even imagine living the way that you once lived. And so when you love as God loves, you naturally obey the law. And so true goodness goes far beyond external actions. The next point here is that true goodness must deal with the sources of our behavior. All right? And I think this is what Jesus is getting into as he gives us our, th- th- this teaching. He's not just dealing with symptoms, he's dealing with the root, the source of where our relational breakdown comes from, the sources of what drives human sin. And so he talks about murder. Murder does not originate simply in the moment of the act. It doesn't begin just in the act of murder. Jesus is saying this is a fruit of a poisoned tree. And so you may think you're a good person because you've never actually killed anybody. But the question is, have you ever wanted to kill anybody? Have you ever entertained a slight fantasy about what it might be like if that person wasn't around. Have you ever treated someone as if they didn't deserve a place on this earth? And 
If you've ever experienced grudges in your family or, or friendships, you know that a person can be as good as dead without actually ever being killed. They can be as good as dead relationally as if they didn't exist. I've witnessed some of that in my family and it destroys the fabric of what family is. And so here's the thing. L- simply limiting the act of murder, I mean, it's, it's a good start, right? We can, let's keep that law. It's, it's, it's a good one. Um, but it doesn't ultimately produce good people, does it? We have to deal with the source. And so Jesus begins his description of the goodness of the kingdom of God by talking about removing the source of our anger. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, uh, German pastor and, and theologian and martyr in the Second World War, he said, every anger attacks the life of the other person. It begrudges others their lives. It craves the other's destruction. And so our next point here is that human hostility is bred of anger and contempt. We need to get a little bit into the language here. So there's two Greek words for anger. There's thumos, uh, thimos, and orizo. Thumos is the hot, it's kind of this hot anger that flares up. It's the one that, um, you know, this, this moment of passion. It's the hot anger that flares up and it dissipates quickly. It's, it's what you could call the occasion of anger. And so that is the emotional response of anger, which is not evil in itself. And yet the Bible does advise us it's really best to avoid it. <laughs> We do stupid things when we're under its influence. But in another hand, in another sense, it's not something we, we actively choose. It's more of a uh, kind of innate response that you have to a situation. And so is Jesus saying that if we just experience the emotion of anger that we're as good as murderers? What's interesting is that's not actually the word that he uses. He uses a different word for anger, which is orizo, um, which is an anger that is inveterate. And anger, in other words, a way you can think about this is it's an anger that, that's left to stew. Like you've got a slow cooker boiling away on the kitchen counter for hours on end. It's an anger that's left to stew and thicken. And so this is really an anger that becomes, it's not just experience, it's an anger that becomes chosen. It's an anger that becomes embraced. It's an anger that even, you can say, is indulged in. Do you know that it can be somehow pleasurable to embrace your anger towards someone? And so there's, there's kind of this progression here. Um, inveterate anger is bad, Jesus says, but contempt is worse. It's this next step. That's what anger that's indulged in breeds. It begins to breed contempt. It begins to make us feel righteous, superior. And so this is what Jesus is talking about when he, when he talks about if you insult your brother. 
And I mentioned that the, uh, some of your translations retain the original Aramaic, Aramaic word, which is racha. And um, the reason they keep that word is because the translators say it's really not a word. It's not, it's not really translatable. It's more of a sound. It's the sound of, of oh, like, when you're just disgusted by something. Oh. That's what it is. It's the sound of disgust. It's the sound of contempt, hawking up spit. That's the sound of it. So it's kind of a nasty uh, uh, idea, and that's exactly the way that it's, it's meant to make us feel. Um, it's the reaction that we find ourselves having when we encounter a person that we just feel is below us, a person that just disgusts us. So anger, Jesus says, makes us liable to the court, but he says, racha makes us liable to the Supreme Court. And then he says, calling someone a fool makes us liable to the hell of fire. And the word fool here is the word modos, and it's, it's, it's more than just calling someone stupid. Um, it's fool in the way that the book of Proverbs uses the word fool. Uh, it's calling someone an immoral person just a degenerate person. So basically what you're doing is you're pronouncing a moral judgment over a person, which really means you're occupying the judgment seat, which means you're really standing where only God should rightfully stand. So you're assuming an authority to be able to judge another human being, and this is what Jesus says we're doing when we call someone a, a, a modos, a fool. So, there's this trajectory here. Anger is part of a trajectory that ultimately, when it's fully formed, fully given birth, what it leads to is the destruction of human life. That's the natural path where this leads. Anger births contempt, which births dehumanizing language, which, when it's fully grown, expresses itself in physical destruction. And if you know anything about history, we've seen this path many, many times over and over again all across the world. This is the root of fallings out among friends. It's the root of vendettas that last for generations. It's the root of church splits. It's the root of civil wars. It's the root of genocides. All of those things are completely impossible without anger, contempt, and judgment, dehumanizing of the enemy. So that's the problem. <laughs> so what's the solution is our next question. What do we do with anger? Well, on the one hand, we're in a time in history in, in the Western world, which is a very broad brush, um, but where a lot of people say, what you have to do with anger is you actually should embrace it. You should hold on to it because without that anger, there can be no justice. So hold on to the anger, stew in it, because that will give you the, the impetus to make a change in the world. It's a cultural moment where uh, contempt for enemies is not only accepted, but a lot of times celebrated. And so it means it's ever more popular to give voice to contempt, where politicians who tell it like it is, which really means dehumanizing the enemy, um, are celebrated. 
And it's kind of this antagonism that, that, that breeds itself. And it sells newspapers. Uh, it fills our public discourse. It fills our you know, uh, social media comment sections. You don't have to look far to find it. But that approach to anger, it doesn't solve anger, of course. It's embracing it. And actually, it leads to just more and more animosity, more of the kind of destruction that Jesus is talking about. And so what Jesus teaches here is that if we're going to experience the kind of life that he's intended us for, the kind of life we were made for, he says, you have to uproot these things. You have to remove them by the root. And so the beginning of his solution is this. Love cannot embrace anger or contempt. Love cannot embrace anger or contempt. It doesn't mean that you never experience anger or contempt, but it means you cannot embrace these things. The community of Jesus cannot abide anger and contempt. Jesus says they're completely out of bounds for his community, for the relationships within his kingdom. He's completely outlawing them within the church, in other words. They're completely contrary to the heart of Jesus. They're they're contrary to the spirit of the great commandment. And so that's the starting point. But then you notice he goes right on to acknowledge, even though they're out of bounds, it's still going to happen. You're still going to feel angry towards one another. You're still going to have times when you're contemptuous of one another. So what's the answer? It's not just not doing them. It's not just, okay, you know, stop being angry. Uh, there was an old, was it Bob Newhart skit where he just says, just stop it, right? That's, I mean, that's a starting point, but we have to go a little further than that. Um, just stopping doesn't actually produce the positive love any more than not going to Paris is a way to get to London, right? So, if, you know, how are you going to get to London? Well, I'm not going to go to Paris. Okay. Well, to get to London, you, you, you definitely have to not go to Paris, but you also have to wait to get to, you need a way to get to London, right? So the answer is not just not doing evil, it's learning how to love like Jesus loves. And when you learn to love people as he did, as you learn to love people as yourself, as you learn to love them and see them as precious images of God, what happens is, you're no longer constantly holding yourself back from killing them. Right? You're no longer constantly holding your tongue from dehumanizing them with your words. Right? So the first thing that we have to do with anger and contempt, the first thing is a a negative thing. We have to reject them, not embrace them, not allow ourselves to stew in them. And when you catch yourself taking pleasure, holding on to a root of anger, pay attention to that and say, no, that's out of bounds. I'm not allowed to do that. (laughs) And so the first thing is rejecting that. But then we have to go further than that. We have to move into action. Okay, And so Jesus goes on to give us two illustrations. Here's what you do. And so this is what the heart of love looks like in action. He says the community of love prioritizes repentance. Repentance. Okay, So he gives two illustrations. The first one, he makes his audience imagine themselves. They're at the temple and they're making 
uh, an offering. They're, they're, they're giving a gift at the temple. And he says, if you're there in the temple and right in the middle of the ritual, you remember that someone has something against you. He says, leave your gift there at the altar. Go back to that person, fix it, and then return to the gift. Okay? So what we probably miss in all this is, is, is the geography. All right? So Jesus is giving this this, this message in Galilee, it's several days' journey away from Jerusalem and the temple, which, by the way, was the only place where you could offer gifts. So he's talking about temple worship. And so what he's saying is, leave the gift there, make several days' journey, fix the thing, then come back, which is an absolute absurdity, all right? That wasn't even allowed. This is not something you could, you could do as part of the temple worship. You can't just like, okay, I'm going to store my gift here. I'll be right back. Um, <laughs> and I was trying to think of a way to, to analogize this to our day. It's kind of like, you know, most of us are internationals here. Imagine you're up here uh, getting married. It's your, it's your wedding ceremony. And all of a sudden, you know, right before you're about to say I do, you realize, oh, man, I remember that high school friend that I really hurt and I offended. And you say, you know what, guy? Just pause a second you catch the flight home, and you fix it, and then you fly back, and you just hope that everyone's still here waiting for you to finish the ceremony, right? It's absurd. It's completely absurd, and, and Jesus is using this, this, this exaggerated example to make the point of how essential relationship is. Stop trying to worship God when you know that you've got a broken relationship over here that you're doing nothing to restore, Relationships are central. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said again, he said, individuals as well as church communities who intend to enter the presence of God with contemptuous or unreconciled hearts are playing games with an idol. God does not want to be honored if a sister or brother is dishonored. Sometimes we wonder why there seems to be this barrier between us and God. You know, I'm not feeling the love and the closeness of God like I did one time. Church just doesn't seem to be doing it for me. And might it be that there's an unreconciled root of anger in your heart that you know is there and you're refusing to do anything about? That's a blockage. And Jesus says, relationships take precedence. And, and this is shocking because he's saying they take precedence even over your act of worship. He says it almost, it almost falsifies your act of worship when you refuse to take action on that reconciliation. Now, I, I have to say this just even in the midst of this. Anyone who knows anything about reconciliation knows it's not a one-sided thing. It takes two people to be reconciled. Okay, so I'm not trying to oversimplify this and say that you have to go actually fix it, but Jesus is saying, make the effort. Go do your part to reconcile. Take the first step. And it's interesting that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he's talking all about relationships, and he, taught, he begins with human relationships before he gets to relationship with God. And if you notice that, he gives six examples of human relationships before he talks about prayer. And I think the reason is it's easier to fool ourselves when it comes to relationship with God. 
But Jesus says, if you, how can you, well, First John says, if you don't love your brother who you can see, how can you say that you love God who you can't see? It's harder to fool ourselves when it comes to our human relationships. And so Jesus says, take the first step, do the right thing for the human relationships before you even offer your gift uh, before God. And so there's forgiveness and there's repentance. But Jesus says, it's interesting, he starts here with repentance. For what you know you have done wrong, start with that. And so forgiveness and repentance, these are essential tools. I wish we could talk about forgiveness. It's a whole thing in itself, of course, but these things go hand in hand. Um, Both have to happen for relationships to be restored. Um, And without those two things at work, relationships very quickly fall apart. If you don't have this dynamic of forgiveness and repentance between two people, a relationship just can't last very long, or it can't be very intimate anyway. So that's what you see. But if any two people have these dynamics of forgiveness and repentance, if they're willing to do that, if you're, for instance, as as a husband and wife, if both of you are willing to have this dynamic of forgiveness and repentance, you can have a relationship. And you can have a relationship that can endure even horrible experiences and failures. And so these are essential tools for relationships, especially for marriage, but, but also for friendships, for, for family. Um, they're just essential tools of relationship in general. And so Jesus is saying, don't wait for the other person to come to you. Don't just say, well, you know, that's their problem if they're upset about that. Take the first step. If there's even one little thing that you recognize you could repent of, go do it. Okay, so that is the first step of taking initiative. That is the first step in the heart of love. Um, And then the second half of that is to be quick to do it. Jesus says, uh, well, the next point here, the heart of love is quick in repentance. So the second illustration shows us about this. He's talking about a person on the way to court. He's probably talking about uh, debtor's court um, where there's some sort of discrepancy and, you know, debt that's owed between two people. And he says, go to the one who has an accusation against you and make peace with them quickly. And so, for followers of Jesus, our pursuit of repentance and reconciliation, it's not when I get round to it. It's not, you know, well, once I've finished this home improvement project or once I've done this or once I've completed this trip. Or, no, he says, do it quickly. Don't, you know, don't just stew in it. Don't just uh, wait till you get around to it. There's an urgency to this. And in a sense, Jesus is being really practical here because when you talk about debt, debt is the kind of thing that builds over time, Right? The longer you leave it, the worse it gets. Stop your accuser before you get to court, because if you leave it till it gets to court, it's just going to keep going, and it's going to take everything you've got, he says. When you let bitterness and anger and contempt stew in your life, you may intend to do it one day, but you may find that your time runs out, and you don't have the opportunity to do what you intended to do. And Jesus says, when that is left to stew, when, it le- when it's left to work on itself, the outcome is that it will disintegrate you. It will take everything from you. So act on it while you can, while you have the chance. We are still in the time where we have time to repent. 
We're still in the time where we have time to reconcile, but none of us knows how much time we have. So act on it. And so he says, being reconciled is actually more important. Notice he doesn't mention who's wrong or right. He says, just be reconciled. In other words, it's more important to make it right than to be right. A lot of us get really hung up on, I have to be right. Well, I'm the one who's in the right. Jesus says, look, lay that aside. Make it right together. And so, do that. And if you don't come to terms, well, then it doesn't matter who's right or wrong because this thing is going to get bigger and bigger. You're, you're going to end up paying and it's going to end up costing everything. He said, and so Jesus is not, he's not just saying, you know, be, the, be the, the doormat and people walk all over you. Um, he's not saying just give in to everything. There are, of course, times where going to court is necessary and stuff like that. Um, he's not giving laws here, remember. He's giving illustrations of what a heart that's filled with love naturally finds itself doing. And so, do something while you still can. Fix the problems within your power before they mount up and become unsolvable. And so today, I, I want to make a plea to you that, that if there's a friendship that's broken, if there's a family relationship that is broken, have you taken the first step? Don't wait for the other person to make the first step, even if they're really the one in the wrong. Do what's within your power to make that first step of reconciliation. And you'll be surprised that in many cases, just even that smallest act can begin to restore things. Of course, again, this is not just a universal law. There are things where you need to get other people involved. There's things where you should not approach a person in particular. Um, and so don't read me in that way. I'm just saying, do what's within your power and what's wise and right to do to be reconciled. And I'd even say, if you're here and you're married, um, I would recommend seeking out marriage counseling, marriage coaching, before you get to the crisis moment. Someone, uh, a friend of ours, Selena and I, recommended us to do that, and it was really helpful for us, and it actually brought up a bunch of stuff that we didn't even know was going on in our hearts, and, and it, made, it drew us closer. But thankfully, you know, the advice is don't do that just when you have no other choice and you're, you're in crisis. Um, place priority on that relationship. All right? And that brings us to, to, the, to the last thing, because you're probably hearing this and you're thinking, well, okay, this sounds good, but this is really hard. And this is, I've tried to do some of these things and I really can't do it. Um, and so I want to finish this, this talk today by drawing our attention again that this is not laws. It's not even just more actions. What Jesus is talking about here is that this is only possible in relationship, in discipleship to him. So the last point here is that the gospel alone frees us for repentance. So if you try and take what Jesus says and apply them as laws, not only are you going to end up in some very ridiculous situations, if you treat them as legal principles, it's only going to lead you to more behavior modification. And it's a bit like treating the symptoms of the disease without treating the underlying disease. And if you make it all about keeping the rules, and all, most of the time what it does is it just produces more pride in yourself, it produces more self-righteousness, 
it, it can actually produce more contempt for other people who aren't doing it as well as you. And so the only way that we can actually live like this is by the cross. It's by the power of the gospel. Because look at, okay, look at the examples that Jesus gives and then look at Jesus. Jesus is our brother who allowed himself to go through the anger and contempt and the murder of our hearts in order to be reconciled with us. He took the first step, even though he was the one completely in the right. He's the only one who had never actually done anything wrong. And yet he took the first step to be reconciled to to you. He not only left his sacrifice at the altar, he became the sacrifice on the altar and went the distance to be reconciled to us. He surrendered his will. He surrendered his right to be angry so that the righteousness of God, the judgment of God would not need to fall on us, that he would cover that debt rather than us. And even though he was the one with the accusation against us, even though we owed a debt to him, he met us before we had to face judgment and made it right. Paid the debt before we had to stand before the seat of judgment. And so in the gospel, relationships with my brothers and sisters, they're not just, uh, they're not just where obedience is tested. What they are is an opportunity for grace. They're an opportunity for grace. They become those relationships, the very same ones that get us annoyed at each other and, and, you know, where forgiveness needs to happen and reconciliation needs to happen. They become, they're not an annoying inconvenience to your holiness. They are the very place where your holiness is shaped. You cannot become holy without these opportunities to practice the love of God. They're the place where Jesus cultivates his heart of love in us. And so every time we feel anger and contempt rising within us, the gospel begins to disarm their power again and again. And so instead of my own will being crossed, I'm thinking about how the gospel reminds me that I've crossed God's will innumerable times and he forgave me. And so what right do I have to hold on to this anger towards this other person? Right? And instead of despising and judging others, the gospel shows me how I was worthy of judgment and condemnation, and yet God forgave me. And so I've been forgiven because of Jesus, and every time I surrender my own will and pride and repent to people that I've wronged, what are you doing? You're living out the freedom of the gospel. You're living out the message of the gospel in that situation. And so the first step, this is in closing. I don't know if we have a closing song or anything. I don't know how, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that up to you guys. But um, I'm just going to summarize a little bit of what we've seen. Um, and, and just in this moment, I just want us to turn our hearts to God and ask the Holy Spirit to, to highlight to us, is there a relationship that I need to take that first step? I'm here worshiping. Do I need to lay my gift at the altar and go to this person immediately and do it quickly? The first step is repentance before God 
And then what we see is repentance is not just a one-time thing. It becomes part of our lifestyle. We repent before God and we repent before our brothers and sisters. And we become the kind of people who repent because we're already forgiven. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that there are still times when we're going to get angry at each other. There's going to be times when we feel contempt towards one another. But following Jesus means, number one, we have to reject those things. They're not legitimate. They're not things that you are allowed to stay in as a follower of Jesus. So reject them. But don't only reject them. Choose the course of action to be the first one to repent, to make that step of reconciliation. And so let's practice the forgiveness and repentance towards one another that Jesus talks about here because that's the only way that we can protect and cultivate the relationships of love that we so desire. Amen? So I'm going to pray and just close out the message. Um, If there's someone here who's never made that step of repenting before God, don't wait. Just like Jesus said, don't wait because you don't know how much time you actually have. Come to him now. If you know that God's got something that is separating the two of you, if there's sin that has separated you and you've never come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to turn away from that and I want to trust you and follow you, you can do that right now, today. And Jesus says, all who call on my name, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So come to him. And for all of us who are already following him, Father God, we pray right now that you would give us the grace to let go of anger. God, because you let go of your anger towards us through Jesus. Lord God, give us the, the, the humility to repent before one another. Lord, and that as we do that, we would live out this message of the gospel. Lord God, and we would become people who naturally live out the law because we're pervaded with your love. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.